0: You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by RICO, your local guide for all things real estate investing in Colorado. What's up, Colorado? Chris Lopez here. And one of the most common questions we get from investors now is, what new legislation has rolled down from the Colorado uh, State Legislature, and what is in the pipeline. Well, we follow it as well as investors and professionals, but we do not know every single bill uh, coming in the pipeline, we don't have the relationship. But we're able to find the who, who was plugged into here. So myself and Jenny Bales, my co-host. What's up, Jenny? Hey, Chris. We're going to dive into a lot of details here today with an expert uh, who is the president of the Colorado Landlord Legislative Coalition, or CLLC for short, and this is a great uh, body or great association that, you know, is a, what, advocates for the landlord here. And I'll let uh, Daniel talk the highlights of it. So, Daniel, first off, thank you for the podcast, or yeah. thank you for the podcast appearance parents drawing up from Pueblo. Yep. Uh, Give us a little background about uh, the CLLC and how you became the president, please.
1: Yeah. So the CLLC was spawned in 2020 by a group of professional property managers because there was no organization that represented the small landlord. So there's organizations that represented licensees like NARPM the National Association of Residential Property Managers. There's associations that represent large landlords, like the apartment associations. But there wasn't really anything for like the mom-and-pop landlord to have any voice at the table. And I learned years ago that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So as the legislation in the state started becoming more focused and more combative towards landlords, a group of my colleagues got together, spawned the CLLC, and since then, it's been going strong, um, defending and promoting the interests of of uh, mom-and-pop landlords in the state.
0: Awesome. And a, a little bit about you. Uh, you run... Uh Moldone Associates, I think with your brother and your property managers, right? Down in Pueblo and Colorado Springs?
1: Yeah, correct. So my brother, Patrick, he does the buy-sell management and and buy-sell himself. And then I manage the properties, uh, single-family residential mostly in the Colorado Springs and Pueblo market areas. So you were in the
0: trenches uh, and out there also on uh, talking to legislatures. Yep. All right. So Jenny, I mean... Where do you even start tackling what is going on? I know you and I uh, have a laundry list of questions.
2: Yeah, I mean, let's just kind of start at the top. What are some of the main topics that landlords need to be aware of that there's a new law in place?
1: Yeah, so I would start this by saying that the legislation has changed substantially in the last five years. Prior to that, the state was what I would consider more landlord friendly. There wasn't a lot of red tape, not a lot of legislation. If you had a bad tenant, you could get rid of them fairly easily. If you needed to do something with your home, you could make it vacant very fairly easily. And since then, um, that pendulum has been swinging the other direction. So it's much more difficult, much more expensive, much more litigious to be a landlord now in the state. And so virtually every aspect of the rental transaction has been altered in some way, shape or form from how you evict tenants, um, to how you screen tenants, to um, how you consider their finances, to their protected classes, to um, habitability is a big one. Uh, to what provisions you can have in your lease, how your application can read. I mean, basically everything that is in the relationship with the tenant has been affected, altered, or or legislated at this point, or will be in the coming years.
2: Okay, yeah, I know we're we're chatting about. Um, you know, some of the main changes and, you know, obviously the disclaimer to this would be read the whole, the whole law, you know, speak to your attorney, etc. But can we kind of give some of the bullet points, um, to some of these major changes that people will want to then remember, Oh, I need to go check in on the details of that. So like, for one, we're talking about the new rental, um, uh, rental uh, income limitations. Can we, mm-hmm. can we start with that? Since I think that's kind of um a big change for a lot of people.
1: Yeah. So I reference these bills generally. I mean, they do have a bill number and I do know what those are, but I don't have every one of them memorized right at the moment. So that's something where we call like the screening bill. And basically what the state did was come in and say, landlords, we think that you're incompetent and that we should mandate what qualifications tenants should meet instead of you knowing what's best for your property and your situation. And therefore, we're gonna create this list of things that now every landlord in the state of Colorado um, must abide by and every tenant can qualify to. So like it was common in the business to have say a three times um, uh, rental qualification, meaning they'd have to make three times the rent in order to qualify financially. State came in, so that's way too much. Now you're all required to charge only two times. And so, um, only charge, only screen. So, yeah. So, they, once the tenant meets two times the yearly rent in income, cash assets, or basically anything, they automatically check the box of of the um, income qualification for every rental property. So, for that part of the screening process, once they get to two X of it, that's it. You just stop. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, so
2: so meaning if you have a thousand dollar a month rental. And if they are are making $2,000 a month, that is qualified.
1: Correct. And some questions that I often get is, well, what about debt to income? And it doesn't matter. The late legislation says once they have checked the box of two X income, now question is gross versus net. (laughs) That's a judgment call on a spectrum of risk. You pick what you want to go with. I can tell you that I believe if the legislatures had clarified it or legislators had clarified it, it would probably be gross pay. Meaning, Oh, they didn't they,
0: clarify it?
1: No. So the bill is is void of, of information regarding net versus gross. So it does tell you what income qualification or what income sources you must use to attribute towards that 2X, but it does not say if that is net or if that is gross. So I think it's a business decision you're going to have to make. And then I think it's wise that you just... Do that fairly and equally to everybody, um, but also understand that it's not just income, it's also cash assets. So, in the thousand dollar a month situation, um, so that would be two thousand a month, that'd be twenty four thousand for the year. If they had a 401k with twenty four thousand dollars in it, the way I understand the legislation is they are qualified, you check the box, you couldn't require them to make an extra dollar of income. Oh, wow, um, because they have a cash asset there. Now, it doesn't say that they have to be able to access the funds like a 401k. You can't really draw off of that easily. You could loan from it, I suppose. But point being is um, there it it doesn't have to be in the form of a paycheck. So even if you said, well, I want your employer to show me X, Y or Z, even if they had like a paid off car, an independent like virtually anything that could be an asset or an income qualifies towards the two X.
2: But it's not directly collateral collateralized in any sort of legal way. I- I clarify so like with the 401k example right. or the paid off car, I can't say well if you don't pay if you physically don't pay me rent this month I'm going to take your car. I don't no. have any authority of doing that nope. so how does that work?
1: It doesn't okay yeah yeah so functionally you have what the legislature forces us to do is if we exist in a vacuum and then we have operationally what these things actually mean for me and you and everybody else that that owns and manages rentals in the state of Colorado. Um, my opinion Mm -hmm. is ultimately if the grab of housing could just be made by the state and given to everybody, that's what would happen. Um, there's a mantra going around that housing is a right. We could argue that, I suppose, but whether it is or it isn't, the question is, if it is, then who's obligated to fulfill the right and, um, you can't get housing from people who don't have houses. So if you're trying to put people in housing who are currently either finding it difficult to be in a house or, or unable to be in a house at all, then you have to go to people with houses, which basically is landlords. And by putting in a lot of these stipulations, they're not interested in if the landlords making money or not. Um, oftentimes the perspective is it shouldn't even be an investment. Like you shouldn't be able to make money off of this thing. Everybody's just entitled to a house. So When you say "how does it work," they're not really interested in if it works or not. (laughs) It's just um, pass the bill, let the landlords deal with it.
2: Okay, it's just interesting because mathematically, you know, you you, I think back to. I don't know. I, I'm very budget minded as, as a as a individual. So it's just like, well, you know, can I afford to pay for this? So it's like you shame think, on you. Don't you, ask
1: those questions. Yeah. I mean,
2: do you think about mortgage qualifications? DTI is a very, you know, big thing. Um, it, it kind of, you know, falls in line to the 30 percent ish, which mm-hmm. is kind of probably where the three times rent derived from back in, you know pre, pre this year. Um, so it's just interesting that it's like, you know, the mortgage qualifications are there for a reason. Cause we had a hiccup, uh, you know, over a decade ago on, on that. So it's just like it, kind of the writings on the wall for that. I feel like.
1: Correct. So I totally agree. And because there is no consideration for debt to income in this legislation, the average car payment, 760 some odd dollars a month right now, So if your person needs to make $2,000, but they're spending $760 on a car payment, that doesn't leave a lot of money for your $1,000 a month rent. Or food or... Or anything. Utility bills, trash payments, um, healthcare. Gas Uh, for
2: the $700 a month. Yeah. Go
1: down the list of it. So the 2X is actually way less than that when you actually look at it.
0: Yeah, And it sounds like too, um, it's unclear, I guess, subjective as to how like... You or the property manager or the landlord may interpret. Hey, is it gross? Is it net? Does a four hundred one k count? That
1: sounds like that's not laid out. Um, the only thing, in my opinion, that's ambiguous is gross versus net. Okay. As far as cash assets, is pretty clear. It says okay. specifically in the statute, cash assets. Wow,
0: I think that that's a surprise to me, and I think a lot of people are seeing this as well. That's good to know.
2: Yeah, because I I'm just kind of thinking through, you know, my rental application process. Like, I, I guess you cannot require them to have a job in the location to which they're moving them in that case if they have savings
1: yes yeah Yeah, my opinion is no so and it while that particular requirement i don't think is is outlined um one of the biggest problems that we deal with in my opinion not problems but one of the biggest things we need to navigate is fair housing Mm -hmm. and probably one of the most difficult things to navigate in fair housing. And where lots of this legislation, both at the state level, but then also just the fair housing implications associated with it, um, they sort of like play together. So you could have like the statutory ramification if you do something wrong, $50. But because you're doing something, there could be a disparate impact towards a protected class, which could expose you to some sort of fair housing Mm -hmm. litigation. And disparate impact For those who aren't familiar is basically you have a policy that's not discriminatory on its surface, but it has discriminatory impact towards a protected class. So where we see things like um, housing, for example, like three years ago, you didn't have to accept a housing subsidy if you didn't want to. Now, you do have to accept a housing subsidy. Some landlords say, fine, I'll take your housing subsidy, but you must still meet the timeline that I have for everybody else. And... I think that you have probably a disparate impact implication there because it's almost impossible for a housing tenant to meet the same timelines of move-in because they have an inspection and so forth that you have to do. So by you putting additional hurdles in front of them or making their process more difficult, I think you run into some bigger issues outside of even like the statutory aspect to it. Wow. So okay. while that particular question could exist on an application and may not have any surface level um, problems, it would just be something to aware of be aware of on like a bigger picture of like could this potentially be disparately impacting a protected class? Oftentimes the every policy could potentially have a tie back to disparate impact, which is why it's a very difficult thing to navigate because there's nothing surface related about it. But from what I've heard with fair housing is you should be looking for reasons to approve people um not reasons to deny them so if you like flip the perspective on that i'm not saying i necessarily agree i'm just saying the perspective of of the powers would be is that so um i think it's actually a very good question and i'm not saying you shouldn't ask it it would just be anything that you're putting on your application or that you're screening you need to make sure that it's uh, anybody of any protected class is not getting in some other type of hurdle because of it so Sort of a long winded answer, I suppose, but um, I think you could still continue to ask the question. Just be aware of the circumstances around it.
0: There's a, a lot more layers to this than I realized. Yeah. 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 Like the backlash on there or the, the unintended consequence, I should say.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Right. So uh, I want to back up. So you, you mentioned there in that example saying that three years ago, right, they passed where uh, everyone has to accept housing vouchers. So Section 8 uh
1: and all those other types of housing yeah and let me just correct i don't recall if it was three years ago but it's been about within a couple years years, yeah so prior to that you could choose if you wanted a housing voucher or not and now you can no longer do that so a couple years into it have what have you noticed any like major shifts or impacts from that last couple years or uh well some of it's too new to now I can say we have more housing voucher tenants now than we ever did before because we were one of the companies who chose not to accept a housing voucher for lots of reasons. Um, the housing voucher today is more complex even again because of the, the um, 2x qualifications that we're talking about. So within that statute, it basically says that you have to accept the housing voucher twice. So by that, it means the housing voucher dollar for dollar goes to reduce the total rent income mm-hmm. and then counts as tenant income on the backside of it. Well, Okay. Walk me through an example on here. <laughs> okay. So like number, I, 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 if you a have a thousand dollar a month rent, okay, well, two things, if you have a thousand dollar a month rent and you have a thousand dollar a month voucher, you're done. Yes. The voucher counts a hundred percent towards the rent. Yeah. Now there's ghost income, ghost expenses. How do they pay utility trash or such? It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Like there's no room for that in the statute. But well, let's say you have a thousand dollar a month rent and you have a five hundred dollar voucher, which means they need to make a thousand bucks, right? For five
2: hundred times two right? for the remaining. So they need to make a yeah. thousand.
1: Mm-hmm. Then you take that income voucher on the backside also as not only a direct offset to rent, but actual income to the tenant. So now they only need to make five hundred bucks a month. They don't need to make the thousand that they technically should, because the voucher worked as a direct rent offset and as an income to the tenant, because of the way that the statute is written for items that need to be considered towards income. Mm. So really their housing voucher is worth double what it is. And there's a break even where they basically need to make nothing. I think it was like 1750 or I don't remember what the number was, but um, yeah, that's kind of what it comes down to. Okay. Interesting. So there's lots of implications in the income aspect of it that we're still navigating. So I don't really know to go back to the question of like, what is this going to look like? The reason, so over our 40 plus year history of management, we've gone to and fro on accepting housing vouchers at the time when you had a decision. The reason why we got away from it is because there was lots of different um, experiences, like lots of damage and you could never get it back from these folks. And then they'd continue with their housing voucher because housing... You could only report post, but they had already moved into a new property. So post move out, you'd tell housing, hey, they really ruined our house. And now we need a bunch of money. And they'd be like, well, they're already in a new house and we can't take their voucher because of that. So like it just created a lot of problems. We just chose, hey, we're not going to play the game. Yep. Now you have to play the game. Okay. All right. What other new legislation has happened? Um, So another one is the pet fee bill, which basically the state came out and said, you can charge $35 per month per pet, 1.5% of the rent. Or $300 security deposit, period, is the way I understand it. Um, So you can choose either or both of those, um, but you can't do any more than total. And then also... Because there was a stipulation that limited the amount of security deposit to 2x the rent. If you're charging a pet deposit, you couldn't also charge 2x rent. So 2x rent is the total amount of money that the security deposit could be. Oh. So let's including say.
0: Including that extra for the pet. Including the 300 for pet. Okay.
1: The way I think you're safest to interpret okay. it. And I try to give you a pretty conservative approach on it because I think the risks um, outweigh the benefits to accepting yeah. $300 above the 2x income okay. or a 2x security deposit. I might be. I might be completely confusing a point on here,
0: but I thought I was talking with someone in the insurance industry a few, uh, while back and they were saying there's talk or may have happened where uh, basically you have to accept all
1: dog breeds. So that's in the same bill. OK. Um, and basically what that did was mandated that insurance companies get rid of their breed restrictions.
2: So I have a lot of questions.
1: on. That. I do. So you, you go first, Jenny.
2: So so. I'll, I'll kind of do maybe the easier question sure. of the two. So the first one being if insurance have to, you know, landlords have to accept all breeds and...
1: No. And, okay. Landlords can still be selective what, how many and how large and so forth, but insurance companies cannot. So like if you remember post 2023, you might have a pet policy that says something to the effect of pets acceptable unless it's a... And a list of breeds that were associated with that, which was usually if the owner had a breed restriction on their policy, that's what we would represent in the body of the ad, for example. Um, You could still say as a landlord, I don't want to accept these breeds, but it couldn't be on the premise that your insurance is requiring that because the insurance Mm -hmm. company is subjected to different terms than the landlord is.
0: So this new rule at the insurance level, they can no longer have breed restrictions. Correct. Correct but individual landlords can still have breed. They can. Uh, and weight. Yes. Restrictions. Yes. Oh, interesting. Oh, I totally misunderstood that. Me too. Yeah.
2: Okay. Very interesting.
0: So what is, are you probably, okay, so what, I am so curious how insurance companies will handle that because that
1: just will. They're going to uninsure people.
0: Okay. And they're going to raise their premiums. Yeah.
2: And you're going to have a pet rider. Like, do you allow dogs? Yes or no? Okay. That's going to be more. But with the pet, fee limitations, pet rent limitations, you can't cover it via pet rent. Is that correct? So like if, if my tenant, you know, love working with them, they say, Hey, I'm going to get, you know, let's say a Yorkie, oh, the tiniest, like little tiny dog ever. Right. Yeah, yeah. Sounds great. Well, but now my insurance is going up $500 a year, but I can't have you cover that.
1: Welcome to investments in the state of Colorado. So,
2: can you call that like an insurance fee instead of a pet fee, or
1: yeah? So, fees aren't they an interesting thing all by themselves? Which could take us down another segue, and I'm happy to go there. And we'll just touch as quickly as I can. As of now, there are limitations on fees. So, the Prohibited Rental Provisions Bill, which I think was 1120 or something like that, um, as part of that prohibited prohibited rental provisions, it prohibits the landlord from marking up a service or a fee. We're charging a fee that's in excess of $10 or 2% of the monthly rent. One um, opinion on that means any fee that you charge cannot exceed the maximum of $10 or 2% of the rent.
2: Minus the pet fee. Correct, because that's a
1: statutory number that exists. But if you wanted to charge an insurance fee... My non-legal opinion says that you can, but it could not be in excess of ten dollars.
0: So even if your insurance rider <laughs> fee was five hundred dollars and the they don't rent care. was that, it would be wow. That's your problem, not that. So,
2: so sorry, I'm kind this getting so complex? Yeah. yeah. No, go ahead. So I'm, I'm just thinking, utility bill
1: back. Mm, yes, is that away.
2: utility rent now? Or no, is you it also can't. Dis-
1: you you can no longer make fees additional rents. OK, so like there used to be a day where we would charge things and we would say any unpaid fees are or any fees are uh, considered additional rent, something to that effect, which would give us the ability to like serve notice of demands, demands for compliance is ultimately evict and so forth. That does not exist anymore. Okay. So um, the fee is the fee to mm-hmm. include legal fees. So this one is very frustrating right now because the prohibited rental prohibit provisions bill basically said that um you can have a fee shifting clause. Let me, instead of the, the, the verbiage in the legislation, let me give you a picture of what this is. We go to evict a tenant. We give them ten day demand for compliance. The tenant has all the way up to the return date, which is the day after court, to pay that balance. Much of the time, if we are going to court, there's an attorney involved. Mm-hmm. Probably somewhere between three and six hundred dollars in legal fees by the time we get to that point. We get to the points of eviction that, or of court. The tenant goes up on the stand and says, "Hey, judge, I have the money. I can pay today." And the judge, or the judge says, "Great, you have until tomorrow to pay 4 p.m. Go make your payment." They make their payment of base rent only, no legal fees. We're not entitled to collect any legal fees because we didn't win possession. And because the fee shifting clause would basically say that whoever wins this thing is entitled to their legal fees, we didn't win because we were chasing possession and possession wasn't granted. So now the landlord eats three to six hundred dollars worth of legal fees every single time you try to chase rent. Okay. And oftentimes you can't force the tenant's hand to pay rent, or you can't get some type of like eRAP funds or or um any any rent um, funds, uh, assistance, unless you force their hand. So you end up running three to $600 in legal fees. Sometimes many months in a row, it was up to five grand on one of them before we ultimately got the tenant out. So, um, point being like, can you offset your interest or your insurance premium? Yes. Next year in a rent increase. Oh, wow. So, okay. So there is no direct a, a direct in my opinion no unless it's ten dollars
0: what plus. about for wow. like rubs you know u- uh, utility bill back mm-hmm. yeah. um yeah so like problem. if someone like hey just uh duplex one water meter we all know hey you kind of either you bill it back so what's what's the situation on that now ten dollars that's your markup so as well, so i can still charge ten dollars not in total but well, it depends i mean if my be, water be bill is two hundred dollars and unit a is supposed to pay hundred there's a question on, hundred.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so it's it. I don't have a great answer and I don't think anybody really does at this moment because it does not say per unit. It does not say per property. It says $10. And you're saying that
0: $100 plus $10, you're saying $10 total.
1: Is that what you're saying? So you would be able to charge the base cost of whatever it is that you're billing back plus a $10 or I believe it's 2%. It could be 1.5. I get confused between the pet fee bill and this one. One of them's 1.5. One of them's 2%. Of the rent would okay. be the maximum that you could charge. So if you have a $100 water bill, your rent is 1000 You could charge, what, either 20 bucks or 10 bucks or whatever. Wow. But the question becomes, is that per unit? Is that per property? I, I don't really have a great answer to that, and I don't think it was clear in the bill. Now, also, I don't deal with a lot of rubs personally in my own business. There may be somebody better for that specific question, but just the hearings that I'm involved in is questionable.
0: Because you're primarily, you manage um, most your portfolio of single family residences, right? Correct.
1: And yeah. even on the multifamily that I manage, there's no real bill backs associated with them. Most of them are individually okay. metered.
2: That's so interesting. Yeah, I was just thinking, because like, you know, um, I, I'm managing my multifamilies right now and, you know, all the tenants, they're very like well aware of like, oh yeah, what's rent, what's utility? Like everyone just kind of knows in this area that like there's going to be some sort of shared utility um, feature to the rent and that, you know, they just, um, you know, they figure it out. Okay. This is going to be my total. So like, it's just interesting to me that it is kind of commonplace. So now when we go back for renewal, I imagine it it may be in everyone's best interest to just say, Hey, I know your rent was a thousand plus a hundred. Your new rent's going to be 1100 and no utilities. Is that kind of the way that this is going? Okay.
1: Yeah. So, I don't think the revenue is going to be reduced per se. I think it's going to be lumped into rent. I think ultimately, had the powers that be, if they could have just stroked a pen, they would have made all fees beyond rent go away. It doesn't mean that the landlord couldn't charge those costs. It would just have to be made up in rent at some point. If you look at the larger picture, though, of the goal, in in my opinion, Um, the goal is to control the property for one and control the price for two. So when you look at like the rent control bill that came out or the just cause for eviction bill, which were two bills that crashed in the legislature this year, but will be in a different, um, version in 2024. But in those situations, like if you could only do say a 3% rent increase, you couldn't really lump those fees in because Mm, a hundred and a thousand, that's 10%. So you could only raise it to a thousand thirty, and then you'd be stuck with the other seventy dollars differential still. Okay. So, um, interesting. The perspective of caring if you make money is just not there. Like they don't care. So
2: yeah, it's just it's just interesting because like it's just very common place. Mm-hmm. I would say just mm-hmm. for like tenants, like I like I oh, said, yeah. oh yeah, I lo- I owe you eleven hundred dollars for the month, a thousand of its rent, a hundred's utility. No and one you, so and,
1: and don't get me life. wrong, yeah. you can charge the utility. But if you think you're going to mark up that cost with like a utility so where 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 this comes into play for example is trash in a multifamily building. Sure. Let's say you have a dumpster that costs you 115 bucks a month. Mm-hmm. You charge everybody in the building 50 bucks a month. So you're actually making 200 bucks a month you're providing trash service for 115.
2: Oh, but this so this is only if you're making a profit on that.
1: This is any cost. Cannot be marked up more than $10. Oh, so like okay. if you have a utility cost, yeah, you can still charge for the utility, but you could not put a processing fee oh. in addition to that more than 10 bucks.
2: Okay. That, that makes a lot more sense. Okay. yeah, that's I, a I lot. lose money on my utilities. Every yeah. Month, so it's so, so right, right, that's all yeah. good then. Yeah. Okay,
1: Yeah. So the, the usage aspect is like, if you're charging for usage, that's not the problem. The problem becomes when you're trying to make a profit in addition to oh, the usage.
2: Oh, okay. That that makes a lot of sense.
1: And it does in our world. But like yeah. if you look at a 400-unit apartment complex where they mark up everything by 30, 40 bucks on each utility, and now you're 1.5 million upside down compared to where you were last year, yeah, it makes a difference. Well, that changes NOI yeah. Yeah. for those investors. Yeah. So I want to take okay. a
0: quick uh, quick break here as we're getting the details and just kind of loop back around to the <laughs> CLLC. I know, I believe you guys are a nonprofit and donation driven, right? Yes. Can you get your volunteer position? I see you're a uh, very uh, knowledgeable, uh, and expert in this matter. So give a quick plug on how it works and hopefully uh, how people can support CLLC. Yeah.
1: So it's like every organization. I just want your time and your money. And, um, so you can join on a membership level, which is 10 bucks a month, 120 bucks a year that gets you like the buy-in of our newsletters being up to speed on when we need your testimony and those types of things. And that will take as much money as you'll give us. But, um, you know, 500 bucks, so I think a year, thousand bucks a year, and maybe 1500 for the year is to kind of like the higher memberships. Yeah. And some of those include some positions like on a board or an advisory council or something like that. So if you want some opinion and what the board does outside of like actually volunteering and being on it you can join those uh the majority of that money goes because we have a full-time lobbyist which is william much and he keeps us engaged in these conversations and knowledgeable about what's going on at the Capitol. and then it's just money like just to play the game just to get to the table it's going to cost you two three grand to talk to these folks and so forth so um the costs add up for fairly quickly but it's like you said an all-volunteer organization and i think it's dynamite like the people that are Members, because we we engage and initiate our members, we'll send out calls to action. Here's who you need to call. Here's why. Here's what's going on. It's so forth. But then just the board member themselves taking the time to meet with the, the legislators, um, providing contact information to our members to say, here's somebody pivotal. We need you to reach out for folks who are in their area connect with them. Um, so it takes a lot to make the thing go because we're very new for one, for two, we represent the entire state of Colorado. So geographically, you know, there's just miles that you got to cover to get people oh, from yeah. one side of the state to the other. And then you also have to remember that much of this initiates in Denver with a Denver centric mentality and you have Swink, Colorado, you know, or these other towns that are going to be, re- uh, impacted by the same laws, even though they don't have the same problems. So yeah, we would time and money is what we need from everybody.
0: Well, again, thank you for volunteering and yeah, if you guys go to uh, the website, we'll put in the show notes, uh there is the donate button on there. I think any support uh will be greatly appreciated.
1: Definitely. Yeah, yep.
0: All right, so back to the legislation here. So, did we cover all the pet fee stuff? Mostly. Okay. Yes. Okay, mostly. Is there an
1: I, uh, I mean, we can get into the, like, no, all we, of these we covered could be an hour the, podcast. the main
0: yeah. points. Yeah. Okay. What the uh, What else do you have Jenny, your your turn?
2: Um, You mentioned habitability. I'm Mm. curious to hear what the changes to that have been.
1: Yes. So another thing you have like where it started and where it is now. So I think it was 2012 is when the first habitability law in the state was passed. And that was things that we would expect people to provide. And it was designed to get bad landlords out of the business. Had to yeah. have a roof, had to have a furnace, had to have <laughs> windows, that function doors that work, plumbing, that functions, like those th- things that is an expectation that yeah. we all yeah. could agree on. Absolutely. Um, since then, it's now gone to, so a couple of the catchphrases is uh, materially interferes with the tenant's life. So that doesn't mean that materially it's like- Materially interferes with the tenant's life. Yes, but okay. not life as in like a life or death situation. Okay. Life as in the existence of humans within the property. If something happens that material interferes, materially interferes with their life in the property, um, then that could be potentially a habitability situation, which means the landlord is subject to various different timelines and financial penalties if they don't do it and injunctions from the tenants and these things. So why that's a thing is because that all-encompassing terminology of materially interferes with somebody's life could be drawn much like disparate impact to anything. Uh, we use our dishwasher twice a day because we like using plates and now it doesn't work. And that materially interferes with how we live within this property. So now you could potentially be subject to um, to the um, not fair housing. What's the other one? What we're talking about right now? Habitability. 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 Yes, thank you. Um, uh, implications associated with that. So when you run into these big phrases like that that are no longer detailed on what is or is not a Um, habitability, habitability situation, it, it obviously creates ambiguity, which then introduces legal fees. So, um, this year most prominently, and actually I'm going to add one here because the radon bill I think is, is flying under the radar and and it needs to be addressed. Um, but this year they changed some things in habitability law that would include natural disasters. And basically they were looking at the fire up in Boulder, Marshall Fire, I think it was, and a couple Mm of other ones around the state where landlords or insurance companies or whoever the powers it be were not responding in timely manners or forcing people to pay when they didn't have a fully habitable home or these things. And so now the state came in and said, uh, in all their desire to clarify, made things more murky and confusing, Um, but nonetheless, like what happens if there's some sort of natural disaster that's affecting more than just your property? So it's just gotten more complex over the last decade that it's been there, and it puts the landlord at a much greater risk exposure. And there were some times where, as I recall, and this could or could not be, but the point is today, you cannot terminate a lease because of a habitability situation. So I had a a sewer in Pueblo. It was a $25,000 sewer job. We just wanted the guy to move. He wanted to stay. We can't provide housing that's uninhabitable. He wouldn't leave. And so the owner is basically an open checkbook. You better be prepared to write $25,000 for a sewer if that's what it takes to keep your house habitable and keep the individual in there. So... As you can imagine, it would be nice if there was something in there that said, if the landlord can't afford something, then we'll work with the tenants to provide them alternative housing or get them out of lease or something that doesn't really exist in the statute. You're basically obligated to make whatever repair it is necessary um, for the livability of the home. So, wow.
2: So in your dishwasher example, like, Mm -hmm. you know, my rule of thumb is if I rented it to you with a dishwasher, you get a dishwasher during your tenancy. Like that's kind of my rule of thumb, but I'm also at the mercy of Lowe's to mm-hmm. deliver the mm. new dishwasher. Is there a time limit?
1: There is. You'll have to look because the okay. bill is very specific now. It's also, I want to say close to 20 pages long. It used okay. to be like two. So, um, but it's 96, 24, 48. If it hasn't done this, then it's like, you could have a flow chart of this, then if when statements and so forth. So I couldn't tell you every last one of them. Cause frankly, when we run into these situations, I have to revisit the statute to make sure whatever claims are, okay. we're either compliant <laughs> with or not. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you should be prepared to move in a timely manner, which most of us are. But right. again, you talk in yeah. the situation about low supply chain. There are no exemptions for that statutorily. Okay. So, okay. Interesting.
2: I um, knew a, a, a new thing that came out also is the portable screening report, mm-hmm. um, which I find actually kind of interesting, especially in this digital age. It's pretty easy. Like if you apply through... You know, Turbo Tenant, you should be able to transfer, you know, between Turbo Tenant users and whatnot. So it sounds like this is just kind of expanding that a little bit, that, or is there more nuances to that?
1: Yeah, there's lots of nuances to it. Okay. For one, there's no portable screening report product that I'm aware of right now that actually checks all the boxes that the statute requires it to check in order for it to be a verifiable uh, and bona fide portable screening report. Mm, okay. So what people often do is, I went to Muldoon Associates and they gave me this credit report and therefore I want to portabilize it and give it to my friends down like Alex Yoder with Dorman Management, for example. My screening report is not a bona fide portable screening report. If Alex chose not to accept it, I think he's perfectly within his rights to do so because my screening report is lacking some things that the statute states it has to have. So um, could you take it if you chose to? Yeah. I don't see any reason why you couldn't. But a couple of things that are important is the report needs to be directly available to the landlord from the provider. Mm. So that's one big rub because most people want to show up with like a PDF. That's not, you didn't provide it. Like I want to go to the website and I want to verify because all of this stuff can be edited and Mm -hmm. I don't know what number you changed on here. So um, that's one. And then for two, overwhelmingly, the portable screening reports do not have either income or rental verification within them. And for the state statute, uh, bona fide portable screening report, it needs to have both of those. And generally, they're lacking at least one of those. So, And why it matters, the portable screening report basically just exempts the tenant from paying an application fee. Mm -hmm. Um, You could do one of two things. You could choose to not accept application fees anyways, like just don't charge them. Um, Or you could, say, refund them if they do provide a portable screening report. Um, but overwhelmingly right now, there's just a ton of confusion on tenants because they, everybody thinks they have a portable screening report and nobody has a portable screening report. Okay. So we're still pushing buttons and charging application fees. And there's
2: a disclaimer that you have to put in your ad, Correct. a certain typeface, yeah. right? Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. 12 point yeah. font, I think it is, or if font is not editable, then it needs to be in the same general text size as the rest of your ad. I would do one of two things, put it everywhere, mm-hmm. put it on your application, put it on your website, put it in the body of your ads. And then, um, what we've started doing is taking a image of a 12 point font, um, you know, like using Microsoft picture or whatever it is, they're just paint or something like that. Yeah. So we type it. So it is in fact in 12 point font and then we put it in the images, not oh, like in the body of the ads. Okay. So when I open it, it, it's bold as 12 point font. It's all the things that the statute requires. Okay. Wow.
2: Sounds like an admin nightmare.
0: (laughs) So this brings up, like, I mean, Jen and I often have friendly debates. You know, I I love property management. Uh, Jenny uh, chooses to suffer self management, (laughs) uh, if I can put words in your mouth. So have you seen? I'm kind of curious, a little question here, like, you know, your perspective, Jenny, as a self manager, you're 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 much more involved in this than I am. And kind of, Daniel, are you seeing like? landlords shift more towards property management or just be like what what the trends you see in self-management from both your perspectives so for a little question oh like, I,
2: I mean my trend is like i'm still self-managing but i'm scrupulously writing notes about yeah. like you know like i'm gonna keep my ear to the ground on all this but i feel like i also have an economies of scale where i have enough rental properties that it makes sense for me to um learn all of this stuff. Whereas like if someone has one rental property, it is probably not worth your time to learn all of this stuff. And it's probably worth it to just kind of outsource that piece to it. So that's just kind of yeah where I'm coming from on that.
1: Yeah. And we're definitely seeing a trend away from self-management. I think two things. One, the point of entry on housing is just exorbitant. Like it's hard for younger people to get into it. So many of the folks who old own homes are older, have owned them for 20, 30 years, are freaking tired of it, and they just want somebody else <laughs> to handle their problems. Mm-hmm. For two, it's highly litigous anymore, and and very expensive. So we are definitely seeing a trend away from self-management. And like we mentioned before the podcast, I used to or i, I used to tell people, you pay me to do things you don't want to do. Like anybody could manage if they chose to do so. It was pretty easy. Three-day demand for compliance. You victim whenever you feel like it. Um, not that I'm proponents of getting rid of good people, but the point is the landlord has all the risk in the equation and the tenant has none. So um, now I say you hire me to do things you can't do. Because it's just virtually impossible to be compliant with the sixty plus pages of legislation that have passed this year, plus the additional sixty that have passed in previous years, which is now a couple hundred pages of legislation with lots of nuances. So,
0: let me take this question one step further. You're saying more people, you know, less people self managing and hiring professional property management. Are you seeing an uptick in people just getting out of the landlord rental game as well? Even though they have a property manager, it's like, hey, overall, I want to be done with it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I encourage them to do so. I mean, I had mentioned that, like, unless you're on fire for owning rental properties and you're willing to commit to a 10 to 20 year thing, don't get in it. It's not dip your water, see dip your toe in the water, see how it goes anymore. For one, I think we're seeing some market condition changes. Sales are down substantially. It's going to be harder to get out of it a year from now than it is today. So just make it go away. But also, uh, if something like just cause for eviction passes, which basically forces the landlord to renew leases in perpetuity with only limited exceptions, you could be stuck in this thing whether you want it or not. So right now in a volatile market, I would say pay the money, make it go away.
0: All right, all right.
1: So so back up. What
0: was what, what was that what, called? Yeah, what you just mentioned there? So just cause that. Yeah.
1: yeah. So just cause for eviction was one of the bills that got defeated on the calendar in the twenty twenty three legislative session. It it exists in a few municipalities, all of which are extremely overpriced. So when they tell you there's a correlation between good cause or just cause for eviction and pricing, uh, they're wrong. Like it's very expensive markets where this exists, New York. Oh, We're cool. talking outside Colorado, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it does not exist at all in the state of Colorado. It's a fairly new concept. Basically, what it says is, assuming the tenant is paying their rent on time, the landlord is obligated to renew their lease in perpetuity, unless some good cause or just cause for eviction exists. The important thing here is eviction, the way that we see it now yeah. the death, the, the the sort of textbook dex- dictionary um, definition Of eviction just means to remove somebody from the home, to forcefully make them go away. So
2: eviction or non-renewal? Same thing. So that's where
1: like the PR battle is existing right now is because people think, well, yeah, you shouldn't be able to just kick somebody out of your house for no reason. In our world, we call it a non-renewal. So at the end of the lease, we just choose not to do business with these people anymore, and we give them a non-renewal. We tell them that at the end of your lease, you've got to go for whatever reason it is, or no reason at all because we don't have to provide it. Mm -hmm. This bill says you can no longer non-renew anybody unless these situations exist, one or many of them. And they limit it to, like, I think there was eight exceptions. Moving into your home. Mm um, selling your home, converting your home to some other use. And then there was like three or four tenant things that if the tenants did those, you could. Uh, but the first version of the bill did not even have exemptions for selling the property or moving back into it. Then the Colorado Association of Realtors got involved. They made some negotiations there. There were some concessions and they added in the transfer of property was a a way that you could get rid of the tenant. However, even at the end of the renewal, or I'm sorry, even at the end of the lease, if you had a viable reason to uh, non-renew, you still had to provide them with substantially more notice, somewhere between 90 and 120 days. And mm-hmm. you may have mm-hmm. also had to provide them with some sort of moving expenses, somewhere between one and three months worth of the rent.
2: And is there a cap on lease renewal fee uh, amounts? Yeah. So, soil? yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So that was that.
1: one thing that I was frustrated with w- in the bill is the rent control bill died, uh, but this bill had rent control light in it because you could only renew the lease Two things. Substantially identical terms, which creates tons of problems. Let's say I take over your property because you don't want to self-manage anymore. And I don't use your lease and I want to put them on our lease. Mm -hmm. And they choose not to sign my lease. I can't force them to sign my lease, nor then I can force them out of the house because the statute would state that I have to proffer them substantially identical terms. So that's one complication so you would be
2: forced into using my lease forever, even okay. if you didn't have
1: a lease. Okay. If you had an oral lease with somebody yeah. and I wanted to put them on a rental lease, I mean, a written rental lease, there's no way I could do that, nor could I force them to abide by the terms of the lease and they could stay there in perpetuity. So there's there's that situation, which is a bummer. Um, and then also the having to pay the moving expenses of one to three months is usually due on day one, but they may choose not to move out. And then you may be already out of pocket one to three months and you still can't get rid of the tenant.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So the, so
0: this is what this did not pass, correct?
1: Thankfully it did not but pass. That was the wording
0: you're describing, but this bill did not pass. Correct. Okay.
1: Um, looking at 2024. Yeah. <laughs> there's going to be something similar to it in my opinion.
0: So in the for 2024 pipeline, there'll be something similar to this, uh, what'd you call it? Just cause.
1: Yeah. Or just cause for eviction and or good cause eviction. Okay. And in the market areas where it's been tried, it's been mostly ineffective, from my perspective. So you um, said effective or ineffective? Ineffective, from my perspective. So one of the mantras of the legislature is basically that, like, you know, tenants should have housing and they should be able to stay there forever, and the landlord may or may not be able to do rent increases on them. Which, going back to rent increases, that was the other thing. It was rent control light because you could only raise the rent a reasonable amount each year. Nobody knows what reasonable amount. Means. Oh,
0: that's the favorite word among lawyers is reasonable. Yeah.
1: So as much legislators as attorneys. Yeah. So it's like, well, <laughs> who decides what's reasonable? You know, if I haven't raised your rent in seven years and now rents went up 50%, is it reasonable to raise your rent 50%? And so one of the conversations we had was you're just basically a... If if landlords in the state of Colorado got together and colluded to to raise rents reasonably every year, it would be a antitrust Maybe violation. Then, yeah, uh, the state tells you to do it, and it's fine. So basically, you have systematic rent increases that get forced upon tenants, and rents will consistently go up. So that's why I say they don't actually, in my opinion, care that rents go up. Um, they just care at the rate at which they do, and. As they do, the argument will continuously be that we didn't legislate enough, therefore we need more, and you run into a chicken and an egg situation where I'd say it's too much, which is why you're seeing this trajectory. They'd say we're not enough, that's why we're seeing this trajectory, we would argue about it. But I can tell you that in every market area where these things exist, you're paying somewhere between four and 8000 for rent for the majority of people. Now, a, so, a small select few may be benefiting from this, but much like all these other pieces of legislation was frustrating for me personally, is when the legislature was saying that people, um, who don't have money are struggling for housing. None of these bills are, are, uh, have a precept of financial anything. They don't say you can only charge $35 on pet rent if they are at or below the median income. They say, we don't care if they're in a $16,000 a month condo or whatever in downtown Denver or $600 a month rental in Pueblo. Here's your cap. And my question is well, why, if the guy downtown doesn't care, why can't we charge him more? So it's like, there's two sides going on, which is we want to do everything at the, for housing affordability. However, we're protecting lots of people who don't need any protections and we're really not providing the protections that the, are needed by the people who need them. Yeah, so it's is like there it, any
2: safety net
0: provisions
2: for, for renters, you know? Uh, yeah. Okay.
0: Interesting. No. Yeah. All right. I guess we'll keep this train moving. Yeah. You, you mentioned radon. Yeah, uh, And I, I had breakfast with an inspector a few weeks ago, and he, he started talking about them. We uh, never came back to mm-hmm. finish off what uh, he was talking about there. So what is up with Radon?
1: So Radon is the most onerous disclosure requirement in the state of Colorado for sale and for rent properties, period. Um, every single property home transacted by sell and or rent must have and must meet the Radon disclosure requirements of the Radon disclosure bill. And if they don't, the implications for not doing so, in my opinion, is, is onerous and unfair. Um, so every single landlord in the state of Colorado needs to have a rate on disclosure. There's verbiage that the state statute requires you to have, but above and beyond that stuff, you need to make sure that the disclosure is accurate. So not that anybody in this business ever does this, but if they did, unlike a lead-based paint disclosure where they check a box that says, I don't know and I don't care, and we provide them the information that the EPA says that we have to provide them, uh, it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. Nobody really knows if there is lead-based paint unless you do know, but a tenant would never be like, that's lead-based paint. You know, maybe they would get it tested with a radon system. If you say, I don't have one and I don't know about it, there's a freaking radon system in your basement. So now all of a sudden you disclosed or you didn't, you have... There clearly is a system, and because there is a system, when you have a system, the disclosure increases. Now you have to provide make, model, installation date, any information you have about the Radon system. So you can say, I don't have one, and clearly you do, and the lease is void because that's basically what the statute says. Or you can say, I do have one because you do have one, and then you have to include all the disclosures associated there with it. My opinion is you have to do it before or at time of lease negotiation. I think technically before, like lots of people want to put it in the lease, and I think it's doable, but I think ideally it would be done. Before that, because the point is, they should have the education about and knowledge about the system before they're ever sort of like put through the system. So,
2: because they're qualified to evaluate that, you know, XYZ is a reputable radon mitigation system, or yeah, <laughs> like I don't understand what the point of the system is. I, I would, I would put more. Emphasis on the test results, yeah. Right? Like that doesn't make any sense. So if you
1: have, to, that's the thing. Is like if you have test result, anything you have now becomes a disclosure item for buy and for sale. The reason why it's more important in the for sale in the for rent world is because we don't have a state approved contract um, in the for rent world. So you have to make sure all this stuff is done because the state's already done it for you in the buy sell world. But um yeah, so if you know about it, if you've had it tested, if you you know like any of those things now becomes something that you have to tell them. Okay.
0: Is there any type of requirement for frequency of testing now or?
1: Not that I'm aware of. Okay. Um, However, if the tenant gets the property tested and it tests high, the landlord has six months to install a mitigation system. Okay. So it falls
2: under habitability at that point. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It has,
1: I think actually some of the wordage in the statute is an expansion of habitability, I think. Mm -hmm. But the biggest concern, in my opinion, is the disclosure aspect of it. Because there's just a lot at risk, especially third-party management. A lot of my owners don't even tell me they have a rate. I have mm-hmm. no idea if it's working, if it's not. Yeah. Now I am obligated
0: to know. And so even if like I bought a rental a decade ago, uh, and now with the new laws, I need to go back to that buy-sell transaction, pull my radon on report, do whatever I did, and then and start including that in disclosures
1: for new tenants now? Is that how I'm understanding it? Yeah.
2: What if you never got it tested?
1: You're not obligated to get it tested, okay? Um, but if you did, any of those test results are required, and if a system's installed, then everything that you know needs to also be conveyed to the tenant. Okay. Wow. Mm -hmm. Okay.
2: Are there any other main Um, changes for this year?
1: We touched a bunch on the prohibited rental provisions... One big thing there that I think will be interesting in the coming years is there's, we used to have a thing called a waiver of class action lawsuit in most leases, basically that said you could sue me, but you can't join a class and sue me. Um, That's now a prohibited rental provision. So you can't waive that right any longer. The reason why that's important is there's a case going on in the Northwest and then also in Denver where tenants are suing the top five largest apartment complexes, basically Mm. claiming that they colluded on these fees to raise a bunch of prices and blah, blah, blah. Um, so I think you'll probably see more class action lawsuits, which is tough because most landlords don't have the finances. Like we can go argue over a deposit for three or five grand, but you get sucked into a class action lawsuit and you're 80,000, and hundred thousand in, in legal fees, it gets a lot more complicated. But I imagine that class action lawsuits are
0: probably much more towards like the, the bigger, big, yeah. the bigger players or how does like, uh, I'm trying to think about how that filter down to someone that owns, you know, four single family rentals.
1: <laughs> well, what ends up happening is they sue the big guy. They get it labeled as a class, and then they start promoting it on TV, saying, "If you have a landlord and you feel like you've been affected, join this class." And then all of a sudden, oh. k- like a vacuum, so these then things they come add in to the defendant list, or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: whatever. Yeah. Is that- don't put that in the universe. Like,
2: <laughs> that. I mean, that's just wild to me. Yeah, yeah, and okay. I'm not,
0: and I'm not an expert on class action lawsuits. Neither. Like, I've seen the ads and gotten the postcards, yeah. but okay, your your logic makes sense. So that's how it can. Um, ripple down across all different landlord sizes.
1: Gotcha. Okay. And any of those implications have implications on all landlords because yeah. like you have these cases, um, I can't remember the one. Oh, the, the one that just went to the state Supreme court, uh, where now we're required to give 30 day notices on covered properties again. You know, that started here, escalated all the way to the state and now affects every landlord oh, going down. Oh, with the down.
2: COVID, um, the CARES Act. From okay. the CARES Act gotcha. that happened
1: like a few months ago. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. So that was a lawsuit amongst a tenant and a landlord that made it to the state Supreme Court. And now every landlord in the state is subject to those rules. Mm. So that's how something to this effect could be, which is if they, if if the judge were to determine that these fees were colluded, excessive, raised, whatever, then that could ultimately filter down to everybody saying you can't do X, Y, or Z. Can
0: you recap what happened with the CARES Act at the state Supreme Court?
1: Yep. So the CARES Act, which was passed during COVID, a provision of that required that every landlord who has a property, which was referred to as a covered property. So if you had a federally backed mortgage on your home, you had to provide a 30-day notice of demand for non-payment of rent instead of the state required 10-day or 5-day demand for rent. Um, the CARES Act expired. And all but two counties in the state of Colorado that I'm aware of basically agreed that every provision of the CARES Act expired and everybody went back to 10-day notices of demand, except for, I believe, Denver and Weld or something to that effect. One of the tenants in one of those two counties had a um, Colorado Legal Services, it may not be the exact organization uh, attorney that represented them, because the landlord posted a 10-day demand ultimately evicted them. The tenant disputed it saying, you had a covered property, you should have given me a 30-day demand. Um, This escalated all the way to the state Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ultimately decided that even though the CARES Act had expired, that this provision of the CARES Act was actually sort of outside of the CARES Act and still existed, and therefore every landlord in the state of Colorado who has a covered property has to provide a 30-day notice of demand, 30-day demand for compliance if you have a federally-backed mortgage. Question, what is a federally-backed mortgage? I don't know. But if you have a mortgage, it's probably federally backed and you should probably be posting a 30 day demand for compliance. Unless you know for a fact it's a hard money loan, it's a portfolio loan, you know, it's something to that effect. But even conventionals, I, depending on the source, I've been told, yes, it is. No, it isn't. So I think there's a lot of uh, confusion, but I would say error on the side of caution in most situations with that.
0: First off, that was a very impressive summary. <laughs> um, you've given that a few times, I yeah, take yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. That was very succinct. Thank you. So kind of like, uh, uh, obviously not legal advice, but be aware of it and maybe err on the side of caution for the 30 day notice versus 10 day notice.
1: Yeah. And I think so. And just one thing is that's only for non-payment. So if it's a demand for compliance for something outside of payment, it's still a 10 day demand for compliance. Okay.
2: Like they set up a swimming pool or something. Yeah. If there's any
1: breach of lease outside of non-payment, it's still a 10 day demand. Okay. and I think that's important to pay attention to because some people get confused and then they're, they post them wrong. But I would also say that there's lots of fair housing exemptions that exist in self-managed properties and folks who live in their own home. And I would not um, rely on conditional exemptions with fair housing. I would play conservative with that as well. And I would follow every fair housing rule. Correct. Does
2: this provision exist into perpetuity or is there um, an end date on that provision itself?
1: There, The only way that the end date could occur with the ruling of the state Supreme Court is if the federal government uh, made some sort of determination that the cares this provision of the CARES Act is expired. So NARPA, mm-hmm. which is the National Association of Residential Property Managers, currently has some conversations going on with some legislatures at the capital, federal, mm-hmm. um, to ultimately run a piece of legislation that would clarify that this has in fact expired and we're not subject to this anymore. Got it. I don't know of many states that are posting 30 demands, 30 day demands for compliance, but Colorado is sort of just an extension of the federal government right now. So Hmm. that might be why we're doing it. Interesting.
0: All right. Before we get into more, uh, updates here, I want, I want to give a a shout out to your property management business because I think that is your, that is your full-time, you know, business and job. Um, and obviously I think give a plug for that because I believe you do Springs, Pueblo, and people can obviously tell that you are a very knowledgeable uh, <laughs> person and very knowledgeable property manager. And I think that bodes as like a very good quality a lot of landlords will be looking for. So tell us about your property management company, please.
1: Yeah. So we're second generation. We do service Colorado Springs and Pueblo areas. Uh, my brother, Patrick, and I bought the company in 2013 from my dad who had started it. I started managing 19 years ago, which kind of seems like I don't know how time flies so quickly, but apparently it does. Oh, I can relate uh, to that feeling now. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, one of the things that we, like our, our principles is education and being knowledgeable and being experienced in these types of things. And I can also give a plug for almost every property manager in the Colorado Springs and Pueblo market areas are very professional people, um, which is nice to be in an industry where you're not full of a bunch of idiots because we're playing with a lot of money. But, you know, it's one thing that we focus heavily on is being engaged, being involved, being educated because- Our landlords are vicariously liable for what we do, and Mm -hmm. they can get sued just as quickly as I can, which I think a lot of landlords believe that there's a buffer between the tenant and them. And there is in theory, but because of the agency and fiduciary relationship, they can get sued and be on the hook for everything I do. So I think we take a a lot of um, weight on that, knowing that if we're doing it wrong, the guy who expects us to do it right is going to ultimately have to pay for it as well. So we just do what we can to try to navigate these waters the best we can, and we try to be fairly risk adverse, honestly, because I think there's most situations, there's not enough financial upside um, to push the envelope. You know, if there was, maybe you think about it, but um, yeah.
0: So if people want to talk to you about managing their properties in Pueblo or Southern, uh, I'm sorry, Colorado Springs, what's the best way? Website, phone number, email?
1: Yep. So the website is Muldoon And I do have a lot of information out there and then honestly, probably call and email. And even if you're not needing management today, but you have these types of questions, this is what I do a lot. So um, right. my phone number, I don't know if you want it in the show notes or if I can give it now. Or, don't even help on the show notes uh, Yeah, it's 719-357-9478. Okay. And then email is just Daniel at Muldoon Associates.
0: And Muldoon, M-U-L-D-O-O-N? Yep. Okay. And we'll put all the show notes too for people... Listening and multitasking like (laughs) so many of us do during
1: podcasts. Yeah, it gets boring. So it's like, give me something else to do.
0: Uh, Awesome. All right. Thank you. So back to, I know I see both of you guys have a bunch of more items on your checklist here.
2: Um, No, I'm just kind of, I don't know of any other topics. So I would, yeah, if if there's any other topics that are major changes for 23, that would be great. And then I know you kind of also alluded to there might be some in 24 uh, for people to prepare for.
1: Yeah, I think we hit most of the 2023 stuff. There was over 20 pieces of legislation that the CLLC was tracking. Six or seven, eight of them. I forget the exact number because some of them have some ancillary impacts on landlords, even though it's not a direct impact. Um, but nonetheless, 2024 is looking like it's going to be very similar because it's the same, like 20 2024 is an election season. Yeah. Yeah. So everybody who came in in 2023, which there's a bunch of freshmen, uh, there's a bunch of people with... Um, uh, they're attorneys, frankly, they have a vested interest in some of these things. And what I learned being at the Capitol is I wish everybody had to have a T-shirt with who they actually are, because I found that none of them are actually legislators. You're a class action attorney, you're a tenant advocacy attorney, you're a builder they attorney. They should NASCAR it up, right? Yeah, just, should, exactly. Like, just tell me where you're at so I know who I'm actually talking to, because you want to put it behind a suit as if you're some either neutral, th- although most of them don't even claim to be neutral. They They will oftentimes tell you what they're seeking, but not why. So... So, yeah, 2023 was tough. 2024, what I'm hearing is 2024. So a little bit of a back history. 2023, one of the governor's keystone pieces of legislation was the land use bill that ultimately died. Um, It was it had a lot of provisions in it, like upzoning in almost every single family lot initially and lots of provisions with that. What I'm hearing is that land use bill is going to encompass many of these other little ancillary Things that didn't get passed individually in 2023. And that's important for a couple of reasons. If you look at New York, the reason why rent control has existed so long in New York, one of the reasons is because uh, zoning is administered at the state level in New York, where it's administered at the local level here, the way I understand it. And because of that, land use is a state thing. The state ultimately mandates what you can and can't do on your property. And by purchasing, the home you part of that purchase is we agreed to basically do what zoning tells us to do and rent control is one of those things So right now in the state with the rent control bill that they were trying to pass, it was actually just a repeal of rent control because rent control is currently illegal in the state. Mm -hmm. So that would just repeal the illegal aspect of rent control and allow any municipality to adopt rent control at whatever level they chose to do so. So you'd have this patchwork of confusion. You might own two rentals in two different municipalities. One may be rent control, one may not. They're changing the words, by the way. It's no longer rent control, it's rent stabilized. It's other things, but it's all the same thing. So basically what this ends up doing Is if the zoning, in my opinion, were to pass, and if these things were a part of it, it gives the state legislature much more ability, or I'm sorry, the state planning and zoning much more ability to just say, this is rent control, period. Um, This is just cause for eviction. Like, if you're going to be in residential zoning, these are going to exist. And now, because we supersede everything, we've determined that everything is an R1 zoning is a rent-stabilized area, or anything that's R4 is rent-stabilized. And I think it's a lot more difficult um to argue the points that have won in other states where like a rank control or a just cause has been passed locally as like a city ordinance because i think there's only two states with just cause for eviction like vermont new hampshire some somewhere in the northeast and then the northwest either Oregon. i think it's oregon uh tj who's on our board actually is a broker in oregon as well so we had a lot of experience from like what they've dealt with to what we are here san diego has an ordinance oakland has an ordinance and so forth but those are just the city ordinances anyways long story short they're going to encompass a lot of these things into the planning and zoning bill and try to just it looks like maybe focus more on one piece of legislation than a bunch of patchwork pieces of legislation and it'll be interesting because the governor is a big proponent of taking over planning and zoning uh, because he thinks that the municipalities have done a poor job of doing it and managing the population. So there's a lot of money behind it. Wow. Mm-hmm.
0: So you're thinking it'll probably be like one one big omnibus bill almost? I think
1: it will be more of that when it comes to real estate this year. Yeah. Okay. Um, and also, it's I learned that there's 100 legislators in the state and basically every one of them is... Obligated to carry five bills, so every year you look at five to six hundred pieces of legislation in perpetuity, whether we need it or not.
0: Oh, they're obligated to.
1: By obligated, I mean their party basically tells them that as being a part of this party, now go run your five six bills. Oh, okay. I don't think it's like a, a, a constitutional thing, like a state but constitution. It's more like the party level. It's exactly we control what you do, and therefore when you come here, we want you to run these bills. Have fun. Whether be, we need them or not.
2: What would be this? Might be a loaded question, but what would be the implications of that bill passing? Um, I know we spoke a lot about the just cause for eviction, that aspect, but the upzoning piece, what, what would be the implication on that?
1: Well, if, if it were to pass in a similar format that it was introduced in 2023, any R1 lot has a use by right up zone to a four or six unit building. So if you are in any neighborhood in a regular residential zoning, they'll bulldoze your house and put a six unit building right next to you. That was one of them. Um, there was a lot, I mean, it was like 300 pages, either hundred. It was the biggest piece of legislation by far in that legislative session. But that was the one that rubbed most people. Also there's ADU by right, which a lot of the municipalities have adopted now. Like if you have at least a 6,000 square foot lot, Mm -hmm. um, there was also mandatory multifamily around public transit. Mm -hmm. Um, so you couldn't have a single family subdivision. Everything would have to be high density housing. Um,
2: what about HOAs that are already in place?
1: So the HOA doesn't really, there is some land use implication in the HOA through the covenants, but really the zoning aspect of it is done before the HOA is like initiated or spawned, I guess. So I don't know. There's a, a bigger focus on HOAs outside of the land use bill. The legislature hates land, hates HOAs um, because there's been a lot of things happening in HOA. So I think we'll see some bills around HOAs, but I don't know if it'll have a direct association with land use per se
2: so like if the hoa says um only or like no adus uh you know within this neighborhood or something like that which takes precedence
1: my guess is the state law would
2: okay so the hoa would have to amend
1: Yes. So, and where there's another rub is like utilities. Like there's lots of areas that don't have water Mm -hmm. for the density of housing that could potentially come about because of this legislation. And as I recall, in the version of that bill, there was no exemptions for utilities. It was just like, you can build it and you need to figure out how to get them water and electric. So... Um, but yeah, in those situations, there could be some implications. And I don't, some of them, there was age exemptions. So some of it was like, if your house was this or older, this doesn't apply and it only applies on new builds or it only applies. So there, I mean, it could go any direction, but there's a lot of pressure on it this year. So
0: wow. Sounds very confusing. Yes. All right. <laughs> so I'm going to loop back around. I think as we're, as we're wrapping this up here, can I bring it back around to what the Colorado Landlord? Legislative Coalition, CLLC, does. And you uh, mentioned earlier that uh, you guys have some monthly donations. Uh, be very clear. You're talking to me. You're talking to Jenny. A bunch of other just you know investors like us. Um, what is the best action to do from like helping you out monetarily and from a simple way to help support you with um, signature sheets mm-hmm. or whatever? You, I forget the um, I forget the word for that. Yep. But what's uh, very some clear, simple direction to give us and other investors?
1: Yeah. So. At minimum join at the hundred and twenty dollar level because you're gonna that's per year. Um so 10 you're gonna, bucks a month. Yep. Yeah, and you're gonna get all the um newsletters, all the calls to action, all the things that you need to know about come from there. And I would say that even if you represent like a broker, like you are the broker or you have an investment group. Like if you go pay your money, you can take a lot of our hard work to disseminate it to your people. We'd love for you to give us more money um, to do that if you're going to, but there's nothing that would stop you from taking this information and giving it to everybody that you know. And we hope it does because like we need the money and we need the time, but we also need the information to just get out. Yep. So if you join at the $120 level and then anybody that says politics is not my thing, you don't have a choice anymore. Unfortunately, you've been dragged into it. You can't stick your head in the dirt. The people that we put in office are not out for your best interests And you're going to lose if you're not engaged. So be engaged, be prepared for testimony. It can be written in person. It can be over the phone um, and be ready to be involved with your legislators. And if you already have a relationship with your legislator, let us know because there's lots of great people out there from both parties. Now I can tell you that there's one party that is particular honed in on, on landlord uh, abuses, quote unquote, that they think we're, we're doing and are looking to put us out of business. But there's lots of great folks in both parties that we're trying to, Um, partner with and say, look, if these are problems, then let's figure out a way that makes sense. Because like one of the legislators, for example, when this just cause was just coming about and we didn't even really understand what it was, he was at an event I was at and they were taking some questions. And I said, you guys just sat up here for 15 minutes telling me that Buying housing and owning real estate creates generational wealth better than anything. But the minute somebody gets there, you want to beat them over the head with a club, take it and give it to somebody else who didn't do the hard work. Like, how can we tell people that this is a good place to put money or do good things when the minute you get to the point that it starts making money, you guys take it? Oh, we're not taking, you know, it ended up in a typical political answer. But nonetheless, like you hear about those conversations by joining um, you hear about the calls to actions you can connect us with our legislatures you can reach out maybe it's your brother sister mother uncle i don't know who it is that's elected and say look these are important things housing is obviously something that everybody needs we provide it like they keep thinking that there's this has to be this combative thing and i tell them if i could affect rent prices i'd charge five million a month on all of them why would i settle for a thousand or two thousand if i was the guy who controlled the rent prices but i'm not you know there's another side to that equation so if we can be housing providers and we can provide housing to people who need it And if they're bad apples, we can get rid of them. I don't think that's a bad thing, but it's frowned upon and it's demonized right now
0: well daniel uh this has been uh probably one of the most educational podcasts i've had the privilege of doing this year so so thank you and thank you for all your hard work and i definitely encourage people to go out there support it i need to get on the donation page myself this week please uh, But everyone keep in mind out there that uh, i know a lot of times people reach out with daniel ask questions daniel is a volunteer <laughs> uh, for the cllc his full-time profession as the property manager so please uh, be mindful of his time as well and i think most of the people at the organization our volunteers as well. So so be mindful, be respectful with the questions, with your time, and balance that with some donations as well, hopefully, right?
1: Yeah, and I mean, don't hesitate to call. It may take me day two, three, or a week to get back to you, but like these are important conversations it's gonna affect. Honestly, it's great for my business and that's what I tell people. This is like a selfless thing. I don't think it's good for who they tell me it's good for, which is the tenant. I don't think it's good for the landlord. I don't think it's really good. I mean, am I going to get more properties? Yeah. Am I going to spend a lot more money legally trying to protect the Yeah. It's like, I don't think it's good really for anybody ultimately. So um, anyways, reach out. I'm happy to have the conversations and educate anybody that wants to be, because I, as I continue to learn, like there's no end points, you know, I mean, these are conversations. If we visited them a year from now, these courts have been in front of judges. We might have entirely different opinions on them. So yeah. reach out. Well,
0: thank you, Daniel. I know you yeah. also drove up from Pueblo. Thank you, yeah. Jenny. You drove from Colorado Springs. Thank you. Yeah. And Jenny, I think we might need to uh, have Daniel back more often to keep us up to speed on what is going on.
2: Absolutely. It just seems very, very uh, evolving by the minute. So yeah. thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. For Thanks time.
0: for having
1: me. I really appreciate it.
0: Great. Thanks, everyone. We appreciate watching, listening. Any questions, reach out. We'll do our best to help you out. See you next week.